Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and as a community. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please subscribe via your podcast app or join my email list at ariarmstrong.com. If you like what you hear, please help to support my work in this show at ariarmstrong.com slash donate. Our guest today is Robert Anthony Peters, actor and director. Welcome, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ari. People who are interested can see Robert's IMDb page and see his history of acting. He was, for example, in the Steve Jobs film, the one with Michael Fassbender. He's also a liberty activist, which we hopefully will have time to talk about a little bit later. But the main reason we're, I wanted him on today is because he wrote and directed a short film called Tank Man. And he released this online and you can listen to it or you can, if you want, pause it now and watch the film. If you haven't seen it already, it's at tankmanfilm.com. It's right around 15 minutes. The tagline is one man stood up to the brutality of the government and inspired millions around the world to do the same. And of course, Tank Man refers to the fellow in Tiananmen Square on June 5th, 1989. And I'm everyone has certainly seen this footage or stills of this where a man put him put his body in front of the tanks so i thought a good place to start before we talk about your film is just to set set the stage and remind us all of what happened back in 1989 that led to that world famous footage and photography well that's uh certainly it can be a very very long answer to that question but we'll we'll try to give kind of the cliff notes version of it um there was a lot of student support for a gentleman now named Hu Yao Bang, who was a uh, reformer inside the system. And he passed away, and the students were gathering uh, in Tiananmen Square in a, in a sense of support for him. Um, and later that continued to expand towards people kind of sitting there as a political movement. Tiananmen Square had been used years ago, I think, um, gosh, I want to say, I think it was 70 years before as a student protest site. It was always kind of a place where people would bring their their grievances to kind of a, a public um, forum. Um, and these uh, more people joined, more students from the countryside, some workers, um, just regular citizens, people had a lot to complain about, as they still do with China. Um, but at that point, you know, some of the main issues were freedom of speech and freedom of press. Um, there were uh, a lot of employment concerns as well. They felt there was a high level of corruption in the government, which, you know, no government, of course, is immune to that, but, um, but uh, can get particularly outrageous when um, you're in a, uh, a socialist system and, uh, and there was a, a lot of nepotism that was going on. So a lot of these students felt that they were graduating into a world in which they didn't have the opportunities that they were expecting to have. And um, there were some other complicating factors. So after this long Cold War between China and Russia, Gorbachev was coming over to visit, and the government, the Chinese government, felt it was an embarrassment to have these students protesting. That's where they would have liked the photo ops in Tiananmen Square, but that was occupied, and um, they uh, 
there were there were just a lot of uh, there was a lot of miscommunication between the student leaders. It was very decentralized, kind of like Occupy Wall Street a bit, uh, and so the government was frustrated because they want, you know, they want a leader, your leader meets with our negotiator, we hammer out a deal and everybody goes home. Uh, and there were a number of people in the Chinese government who were not entirely unsupportive of the students. Some wanted to let them, you know, some shared their concern. Some wanted to engage in reform. There was definitely a reformist wing. Uh, but in the end, as you know, we wouldn't remember this event event if the hardliners didn't win, and that's who came out on top. And so um, they decided to uh, to crack down and clear the square, and it ended up in the deaths of 10,000 people. For a lot of us, I think image imagery of Tank Man specifically is just seared into our memory of that event, and it's just so tragic, and yet it's, his actions are so inspiring. For a long time, I thought that he actually died in the course of those events. But then looking at this later, I realized people still aren't entirely sure who this is. There's some good guesses as to who it is, but people aren't sure of who the man is who stood in front of the tanks. But if you watch the entire video sequence, eventually some people come out and rush him out, rush him out of there after a fairly prolonged encounter with the people driving the tanks. Oh, it's, it's, it's not uncommon. I hear that all the time that people think he died, that it's that uh, Mandela effect, I, I guess it's it's dubbed, um, where you know people believe that there was a different outcome to uh, to to what happened, and almost everybody thought he died. And then you know, yeah, like you said, the the footage, you know, this brief two to three minutes of footage we have of this gentleman, uh, you know, he's seen kind of hustled off of the uh, from that intersection there from the street. And then there's people who, you know, speculate differently and they say, oh, those were the secret police and they killed him right after that. Um, or, you know, there's the uh, notion that it, the the response I like the most is the, the, the person who, who was being interviewed asked about that. And they said the police never would have been so gentle with him. If it was actual police, they would have been, you know, grabbing him and tossing him off the street as opposed to kind of. These guys are more shepherding him out of the way, like, hey, you've done enough, you know, go on your way before it gets worse. So the story I'd like to believe is that he remained, he maintained his anonymity and was able to just go about living his life after that without getting into serious trouble by the government. That's the one I'm sticking with. There is an alternative version, though, that would be... There certainly is, and it's, uh, it's not without its probability, unfortunately. So the anonymity of the, of the person is sort of what sets up your film. I'll, I'll try to summarize it and you can correct me if I if you want to. So the idea is we don't know who did this. So you are laying out a story of what might have been the sort of figure who might have done this. And you're showing a personal look at who this person might have been and what could have led up to this incident with him squaring off against the tanks. Is that that's basically it so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we have a strong desire to know what drives our heroes to do what they do, right? I mean, we love the the biopic. We love, you know, uh, the story of Braveheart or, uh, you know, a story of Robin Hood. And it's not as engaging uh, when we just enter and see the action. I mean, the action is really cool. Don't get me wrong. And particularly with this guy, I mean, it's it's uh, 
really outrageous and inspiring. Um, and we can talk about that more later. But, you know, but I, I think there's also a strong desire to know why did they do this? You know, who who is this person that had the the courage to be able to do this? And in order to do that, we need a little backstory. And so I've always wondered, I mean, ever since I was a child and first saw that photo, I mean, it was so inspiring. But I really wanted to know, who was this? Why did he do it? It's, uh, it's just such a mystery. I mean, he's a, such a seemingly ordinary person. You look at him and he doesn't look like Achilles. He doesn't look like Ajax. You know, he's not, uh, he's not somebody like we see, you know, in photos of Marines and Navy SEALs. You know, he's not some really strong guy with a, a sledgehammer or a sword or a machine gun. He's just a slight fellow wearing, you know, the plainest of clothing with uh, grocery bags. And you, you wonder, you know, just uh, he doesn't seem like our likely hero. And in your telling, initially, he's not that interested in politics. And he's more of the let's keep our heads down and stay out of the way mentality. And he's a family man. And so when you have a family or a lot of people are less inclined to get involved in dangerous activities like that. So that to me is part of the beauty of the film is seeing this regular person who, after what he witnesses, decides to take bold action. Well, I I really love the stories of the reluctant hero. You know, it's, I've met, you know, I, I give a fair number of talks throughout the year on, on relationships between art and liberty. And so I meet a lot of, um, activists who are enthusiasts and they're, you know, particularly the young ones, they'll be getting ready to graduate college and they'll say, you know, I, I want to go out there. I want to do something. I want to make a difference. I want to get arrested. I want to get in trouble. Like I want, you know, to spotlight this issue. And, and I say, you know, it's unfortunately, you know, if you do your work well enough, the trouble will come for you. You don't have to seek it out. Um, and, and, and so I, I think there's, you know, a nobility in, tending to your own things, right? You know, you've got a responsibility to your family. We all do to our uh, our spouse or our children or our parents, uh, siblings, and that should always be first. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there are moments where we encounter, wow, you know, there is an evil so heinous and so encompassing that we really can't stand by and do nothing. And sometimes we have to hazard that in order to maintain our own dignity and sense of self. And without that, we wouldn't even be any use to our family because we wouldn't be as human as we should be. Uh, you know, I, I hope I hope none of us have to encounter that where we're forced to, you know, either make a heroic decision or not. But, you know, sometimes... This is just the story of, of one man, I think, who was forced to make that choice. And and I think he made a tremendously courageous one, one that, you know, many of us would like to think we would do, but but many of us may not do, right? I mean, it's, it's a highly unusual, uh, it's an extraordinary act. And I think it's great that we recognize and value that. Well, that's one reason why I think the film is so beautiful, because... It does have that universal theme that, in the abstract, this is anyone facing this sort of tyranny or oppression or uh, 
some other major force that's doing wrong. And then what do you do in the face of that? And I think it's very effective and very well told. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I, I think that I, I liken our tank man to like Frodo Baggins quite often where, you know, just you look at Frodo, he's just this little hobbit in a big world. And, you know, yeah, he's not a warrior. He's not a leader. But he's somebody who recognizes that something has to be done and he may be the one, he is the one to do something at this time. You know, he's the only one who's not going to be seduced by the ring. And so he feels that obligation uh, is incumbent on him to follow through with that and, uh, you know, and, and save a lot of other people at great personal cost. And... I think of that with our tank man as well. You know, he didn't set out, he didn't train to, you know, as far as, as it seems, he didn't, did not intend to be a great hero. Um, but, you know, he, he met a set of circumstances by which he could not act otherwise because of the man that he was. So there's a story that you integrate into the film about an ant colony. And the ants face flooding in order to protect the colony as a whole the outer ants might take they they face fire fire close yeah oh oh i'm sorry i'm sorry fire okay but at any rate the outer ants have to put themselves in danger for the sake of the rest of the ants and i was curious where did this story come from and how did it how did it occur to you to integrate it into the film i'm so glad you asked that um so i was watching so i i'd been reading many uh Chinese fables and stories and legends and uh, trying to find something. You know, I'd find a little bit here and a little bit there that might work, um, but I just wasn't hitting on the right thing. And then I was watching, I think it was the uh, documentary, The Gate of Heavenly Peace. I've watched so many documentaries on this. And I think it was that one, which is excellent. I believe it's also on YouTube. You can find that and and watch that for a, for a greater context. And regardless, it was, there was an interview with one of the student leaders and she said, I'll tell you the story that I told to the protesters the night before the tanks and soldiers came in. And it was that story. Now, the plot twist here is I was recently on a panel with one of the student protesters. In fact, it was the second, there were two female leader, protester leaders. And the one who was on the panel with me was not the one who told the story, but the other one. And she said there was great controversy about that story. And I understood, and, and I, I liked the fact that there was controversy about this, because she said the students uh, and the others, the, the protesters were saying that they have, you know, they're always told that by the government to sacrifice yourself for others. And so they were saying, we're... We're tired of doing that. We're not going to continue doing that. There, there was some uproar about it, but we were very careful in our script to say that they volunteered, that uh, those who volunteered to be on the outside, because we wanted to make it clear that this wasn't some people were selected and forced, or some ants were forced to sacrifice for others. But, you know, you can step forward and do that. And, and to me, objectivists may disagree with me, but to me, uh, I, I think... You can choose to put yourself in hazard for the sake of others, uh, so long as that's voluntary. 
um, you know, that there, there could be some greater cause by which uh, you, you know, you find it, it's worthwhile to save your, your family, to save your friends or, or something like that. And so we, we did want to make that, that clear that, uh, that it was a, a voluntary choice because that's exactly what this guy did. And that's exactly what all of these students did as well. You know, these protesters, they were there voluntarily. Nobody had drafted them to be there and to protest. I'm, I'm still happy with our choice to include that despite the controversy. But it also was encouraging me to me because there are some people who um, want to characterize the student protesters uh, differently. Now, you know, I, I'm not under any grand delusion that this was some ultimate libertarian expression that, you know, they have this tremendous under full understanding of negative rights. And, you know, they they were protesting uh, for Austrian economics and whatever else, uh, you know, it it's, you know, they were a lot of it there was they wanted greater democratic uh, processes and uh, some of it was still, you know, like a lot of the jobs are government provided. So they're, they're looking for greater opportunities in that. A lot of what they, they wanted greater freedom and they wanted greater uh, equality of treatment before the law. And I think those two, we can certainly agree with, you know, it, it, it wasn't some perfect, you know, uh, event led by Murray Rothbard, but it, it also wasn't like some people uh, claim that it was really this uh, socialist faction takeover. Because if if that was the case, I think there wouldn't be any question about the ants, you know, the, the sacrifice for others. They would still be fully on board with that. But the fact that there was this spark of individualism and that's what caused that argument about that story, I think that speaks to the validity of why why we are right to be sympathetic to them and to wish their cause well. I thought the story worked very well in the film, the way that you used it. I'm also very happy to hear that there was some pushback against the use of that story for the reasons that you outlined. So that makes me pretty happy. The way I think about, about this is whether you're being forced to sacrifice your values, your family, your interests for the sake of some outside interest or whether you're like you say choosing to do this voluntarily because the values at stake is something that you have have a personal stake in and have an interest in and, and want to protect for the sake of yourself your family your broader base of friends your broader society and so if you look at it that way i think it works perfectly well but again i'm very happy if people are pushing back against the the possible collectivist sort of uh, interpretation of that story. It, it was cool. And I mean, I, I still think it fits uh, really well. Our alteration of that was with an, um, an objectivist sympathetic writer, a screenwriter named Paul Gay, who was a terrific mentor to me in this process. And, um, and he wanted to make that voluntary aspect clear. And uh, yeah, and I was really grateful that he had the foresight to see where that was. Me, I love history so much that I wanted to take basically what she said in that interview verbatim and apply it. You know, I, I try, even though this is a um, imaginative speculation, to me, you know, historical accuracy insofar as we can be is so important. But 
that kind of change was important for the story that we value and wanted to tell. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you encounter some of those trade-offs and, you know, you don't have to throw out both values, but certainly entertainment and, um, and your kind of message and, uh, and historical accuracy, they're all important parts of that and, and balance has to be made. So I want to get back to the actual making of the film in a minute, but first a big piece of news that I saw somewhere on social media. You are headed to Hong Kong to show this film. Is that correct? That is correct. And when is this happening? So the film festival will be July 6th and 7th. It's the Hong Kong Arts International Film Festival. And we will be yeah, screening Tank Man uh, along with they'll be screening a, a number of other films. So if any, um, any uh, folks would like to pass along uh, any information, you know, any connections or advice or anything like that, I, I certainly would, would appreciate it. Uh, I'm pretty accessible online. So the timing of this could not have been more interesting Fortuitous. and frightening <laughs> at, at the same time. A little. So it's June 18th as we record this, and there have been photographs, video footage of massive demonstrations in Hong Kong protesting various Chinese actions with respect to Hong Kong. I don't under, I don't know. I haven't followed all the details, but it basically has to, a lot of it, some of it has to come down, comes down to extradition arrangements and such. So um, <laughs> what do you think about going to Hong Kong in the midst of this? Uh, and do you, what do you think the odds are of you actually making it there and showing your film? I, you know, I, I think it's very high, um, and I hope so because I've already spent the money on flights. <laughs> uh, so I try to be uh, as optimistic as uh, with with realism uh, sprinkled in. But I, I just see Hong Kong is currently relatively stable. I could be grossly ignorant on that situation, but I know it's one of the safest places in the world, and so I just have a hard time thinking that this is going to be a, a a huge conflagration where I, I couldn't visit. There's so much business and so many other things that require a, a social stability. But it is amazing the number of people who are coming out and protesting. I mean, even after, you know, before, while the extradition bill was on the table, one million of seven million people were out protesting. A tremendous number. I mean. Yeah, the, the imagery is just phenomenal. It's just amazing. I, there's this time lapse sequence and it's just throngs and throngs of crowds of people it's just never ending and you know and since they've tabled it this past sunday they've had they had two million out of seven million people on the streets i mean that's about 30 percent of the population uh you know could you imagine 30 per we can't even get 30 percent of the u.s to vote uh, you know from their own home <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, but to have people hitting the streets, 30% of a population, that's just outstanding. Um, so it's really exciting. I mean, I hope, you know, listen, they may have better things to do than go see my film. Uh, then I, I hope this is resolved, of course, you know, swiftly and to the benefit of the, the Hong Kong people. Um, but, uh, you know, if not, I'm definitely going to enjoy um uh, going there and seeing what's going on and, and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe I'll be participating in the protests along with them. I'll certainly be interested to hear how people there respond to your film 
who see it. And it's also a little bit, I mean, I can't imagine that there won't be Chinese agents also watching <laughs> just to see what's going on. So it's, it's just such an interesting, and like I said, somewhat, you know, it's not like me driving, going across state lines. This is, you know, coming out with Tank Man, which is critical of the Chinese regime. Showing it in Hong Kong during this time is, is that's, that's an interesting move. And it's it's funny that you bring that up because I I do I have some critical views, more than a few, of the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. I set out to make a film about an individual, though, and his heroic and courageous action. And it's been interesting because, uh, you know, maybe I failed in that task because most of the responses I've gotten have been about the Chinese government. But I'm sure I guess these things just go naturally hand in hand. You can't, it's hard to view Tank Man without thinking that his opposition are really a bunch of creeps. And so... I'm trying to be put this as gently as I can. <laughs> um, I mean, realistically, you may have this may be listened to by certain <laughs> hostile parties prior to your presentation. Sure, sure. No, and and you know what? For that matter, I will call them murderers because that is what happened. They killed ten thousand people that day, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party, which still exists, is one that has killed probably in the twentieth century uh, nearing a hundred million people. Um, you know, more than 70 million people by dead by the, the hand of their government. So that's, uh, that's something that, uh, I, you know, I, and I know it's been changing, but boy, you know, I feel like it's got to change a lot more and a lot, uh, swifter, uh, because it's just to, to leave that option on the table that that kind of death and destruction can continue is just unconscionable. Uh, but you know, I try to be a good guest when I'm in another country. Um, I've I've applied several times uh, for film festivals in China. Uh, I've been rejected for for each of them so far. But I like to think at least uh, the the judges of the films had a chance to see my my film. I've had some curious interest um, from people that have found me online and wanted to see more of the film. Uh, since it's been completed, but before we did a general public release. And I, I was, some some of the inquiries were a little suspicious and I was wondering whose eyes were on it. I really want to uh, apply for a Chinese visa and see if that's something I would be eligible for or not. Um, so I am hoping to 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 do that at some point. I thought that would be worth the, the time and money as an experiment to see if this has ruined my opportunity to experience China but uh, at least for now, I can go to Hong Kong. I try to be remain optimistic about China, and certainly they've had some wonderful reforms and some wonderful economic advancement, and enormous numbers of people have slowly gotten out of poverty there, which is that that part of it is is phenomenal, tremendously encouraging. Yeah, I'm I'm so grateful for that. The political reform, though, is still rather slow, and and in regards to rights or stability of rights, is is still a very rocky road. And it seems to have taken a somewhat of a hardline turn in recent years, which makes me extremely nervous. So there seem to be, you know, I don't want to oversimplify, but there's definitely the the faction, the pro-liberal factions working against the hard, harder line, still communist factions. And uh, 
for all our sakes, and especially for the sakes of the Chinese, I hope that it works out in the fa- more in the favor of liberty as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, I, we can only hope, and you know, I'm I'm hoping that projects like this will help. You know, if nothing else, build some awareness and, and thought uh, in outside of China, since I know because of China's strict censorship of what its people can take in uh, via the internet. I have it's doubtful that many people will see this in China. But uh, but hopefully, at least in the rest of the world, much like Tank Man was such an inspiration. I mean, this was one of the things that I thought was amazing. Is you know, folks in in China don't aren't familiar. Uh, some of them are not have never even seen this picture of Tank Man. And there's a great book called The People's Republic of Amnesia by Louisa Lim, who's a journalist. She's currently in Hong Kong right now. I follow her on Facebook, and uh, and it's about this kind of collective. Um, purposeful um, amnesia on the topic, and that the Chinese government, of course, is instrumental on this. They block, they work with Google, with Yahoo, with Bing, with all the search engines to prevent access to certain sites, images, stories, searching keywords, um, you know, m- manipulating the results that appear. Uh, and these companies, you know, I think much to uh, what should be their shame, work hand in hand with the with the government to restrict people's access to information that we take for granted here. Um, and we should, right? This, this is natural. We should have, you know, the, the possibility of seeing whatever our fellow humans put out there. Um, so, but, you know, hopefully, hopefully this may sneak through and, and make some difference uh, on some level. Maybe there will be a bootleg tank man on DVD floating around. I, you know, yeah, I hope so. Some USB sticks, uh, yeah, traveling from hand to hand. I, 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 I don't know why I'm thinking of this right now, but there is kind of a curious thing. We, we, our film posted on Facebook has a lot of responses, and there's a lot of people who uh, accuse me of being a uh, CIA stooge or that this is some sort of. <laughs> I know Ari knows me really well, so he, he, he can't imagine the world in which this would be. <laughs> A possibility, um, you know, or, or that this was part of this, you know, this is one of the tools to fight the tariff war. And, you know, and, and you know, as as well, I mean, not only am I not a CIA stooge, but I am in no way in favor of tariffs, I, you know, on either side for that matter. I, I confess I don't see the connection, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like this was a long game, right? We shot this three years ago and we're staging the tariff war now and, and using this to, uh, you know, it, but it's just. This is what people who are grasping at reasons, instead of kind of confronting what the Chinese government did, they are saying, you know, hey, we're going to attack who's making this. And it's like, oh, my gosh, if they knew, like, you know, how much of my own personal money I've spent on getting this thing and giving it its legs. And we, we got a, a grant from a very generous organization called Taliesin Nexus, um, and this was created under their auspices. Um, and you should check them out and, and support them. Um, but certainly I've had to kick in a, a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, and the prospects of me making any money from a short film is is almost non-existent. So, you know, it's just it's, this is a passion project. Um, and I've always admired this image. And, you know, I want, I want to share this art uh, with the world. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for doing it. I mean, I hope that you get some benefit in terms of 
career visibility or or things along those lines. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, if nothing, you, you know, I love talking about liberty. So for, to just to have the opportunity to to share this and hopefully encourage people to find value in kind of the, you know, the ideas that you and I hold dear um, and just how important they are. And, you know, in, in some cases like this, it's a, it's a function of life and death uh, when, when you can have a government that can just roll tanks over people and bury them in mass graves afterwards. I mean, that's not a world that anybody should have to live in. You know, it's, you know, people that, uh, you know, say like, oh, I'm, I'm against the Chinese people. I think it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, you know, I, I, I do this because I care about people all over the world and it sounds sappy, but, but, you know, so be it. I'll be a sap then, you know, I, 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 I want, the world to be better for everybody. It's certainly not just for Americans. Uh, you know, my, my kind of view on things is uh, American is as abstract a concept as any. I, it's so distant. I can't relate to, you know, people all over. I mean, I have a deeper care and concern for my family, my friends. But outside of that, I look at the rest of the world as, as you know, my fellow brethren of man, you know, it's, it's my fellow population. So, um, and I, just would like everybody to have a fairer shake. I mean, you're not almost certainly not putting yourself in physical risk by doing this, but as you say, you know, you put a lot, a lot of yourself, a lot of your resources into this. Oh yeah. I'm not trying to compare myself to tank man or, or other, you know, heroes. You're, uh, yeah, that's definitely true. No, no, no. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, just, I, but I, you know, I do think that it's admirable that you have put so much into this and you're taking, you're taking this project so seriously. But the follow-up question is, with the ants, I mean, have you thought about how, I don't know, if there's the ball of ants, how far out on the edge are you willing to go? Have you, have you thought about that? What are your, what are your, what do you think people should think about that? Because it's, it's hard and most people won't do it, can't even conceive of putting themselves, they can't even conceive of putting any serious resources into a project like that, much less putting themselves in personal danger. So have you come to uh, made peace with, with the idea that of where you are in terms of how far you could be willing to go depending on circumstances? Well, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's something that I definitely toy around with and probably a number of people do. You know, kind of what what is that point? Um, and I, I, I think we don't, you know, we won't really know the answer, right, until we're there and making that choice in that moment. Um, because just just like for Tank Man, I think this wasn't wasn't particularly premeditated. I mean, there the there was on a on this panel I was on recently. There was also the one of the photographers of Tank Man, and he was the guy who got it on the ground level. And you see Tank Man standing there and waiting for the tank. And so he was referring to it as premeditated, and and in a sense, yes. But you know that depends on kind of the timeline, right? I mean, I think this was premeditated, as in you know maybe five minutes before or something like that, 10 minutes, you know, but not like as in he'd, I don't think he was preparing to do this for, for two months, you know, since the protest started, um, especially since nobody even, you know, nobody knew the tanks were rolling out. Uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think as many people probably would have been out there protesting if they knew the outcome. I mean, it's just natural, right? If I know I'm likely to die or I will die, I will probably move myself out of harm's way. So I think a lot of these decisions are made more spontaneously, but it's good to think about in advance. You know, I, I'd like to think that if uh, there was direct harm to 
my family or friends or, or even at times strangers that I would step in and, and do something. You know, when it's something like an abstract concept, uh, you know, uh, for just, you know, the a notion of free speech, I don't know how much I'd hazard myself for that. I value it tremendously. I value those liberties and, and rights. Um, but, you know, I mean, you look at, you, you have a, a view of, of your right to property, but, you know, I mean, most of us pay uh, taxes um, to one extent or another throughout the year. And we're not, most of us aren't willing to say, you know what, let's take it to the nth degree. They can come and knock on the door and I'll refuse arrest. And, and, you know, eventually they'll shoot me. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a good uh, strategy. You know, we need as many good people among the living as we can. It's, it's much more helpful that way. Well, at a minimum, we can honor projects like yours and try to spread the word about it and and especially honor the people who do take the path of heroism in those difficult circumstances like tank man and try to make sure that their story you know that we break through the amnesia not only among our own ranks but hopefully in china as well Um, maybe we can move into the actual production of the film a bit so i don't think i mentioned yet so you you don't try to recreate the footage of the actual incident with the tank you use the standard footage available and so you're creating a story a speculative story working up to that moment um and it's filmed in english which is interesting so walk us through where was the genesis of this how did the production develop and where was it filmed how did you how did you pick select the actors that kind of thing because you're the writer and director right yeah yeah and i've done you know, I've I've had other folks uh, producing as well, but I uh, I also have taken quite a stab at pr- producing it. So, um, I certainly, I certainly, uh, I, I wanted to shoot it. You know, I would have loved to have shot it in China. I don't have the money for that. I would have loved to tank. I don't have the money for that either. <laughs> I uh, well, on top of that, I you know, in in regards to uh, Beijing in particular, I never would have been allowed to shoot that there. I mean, you you can you can't do anything uh, askance in the Tiananmen Square area in particular. Um, it gets shut down immediately. And there was somebody, a fellow filmmaker that I know, who was trying to make a film on the Great Leap Forward, uh, which you know they they say with with no irony whatsoever. Um, and uh, she was going to um, shoot this film in China and it got shut down on the first day and she ended up completing it. It's a beautiful film called Empty Skies. It's worth uh, taking taking a look at. And then I did want to shoot it in Chinese originally, but a couple of issues. One, folks who speak Chinese, you know, most of the ones in China are probably never going to see this. So the largest, you know, Chinese population will never see it. Um, and then outside of China, most people speak English, both Chinese and, you know, the rest of the world. It's, you know, a universal language uh, of sorts. Um, And so we thought English would be the most, would make it the most accessible to the most number of people, um, which, you know, is is part of, you know, why we created this for the advocacy aspect. So, so we could share it. And, and finally, I, I don't speak Chinese. So if I had actors speaking in Chinese, I would have no way of being able to assess their performance or, you know, whether, whether we got what we needed or not. I just, I'd kind of be beholden to, um, to a translator. And, uh, and I wanted to be able to, you know, 
work with my my actors and and also you know understand what they were saying one of i think the interesting stories about pre-production uh, is during our casting process where people would send me their materials and or audition and call back and i had a number of actors who after learning more about what this film was about said i'm sorry i can't be a part of this and that's largely because yeah, they said you know i i'm a chinese citizen or i want to go back to china or i have family in china and they were afraid of the repercussions now you know the, the us is far from perfect um and i i'm not some great patriotic booster you know i like to point out the flaws against liberty wherever they are uh, but but fortunately here, we don't have that much of that concern. I don't think. I mean, I've never heard any. We get all sorts of anti-Trump uh, projects that come out and you know, whatever else. And there are very few people who are afraid of reprisals, at least to the extent that uh, they are in China. You know, we do have some of that. I know some people share concerns about, well, if I donate here you know, to this nonprofit, is it going to Am I going to get people at the IRS, you know, bothering me about it or, or giving me audits and things like that? But their concern about what Chinese government retaliation would be if they were engaged in this project is pretty severe. Um, so I, that was definitely a disconcerting uh, process, though not a surprise. So, I mean, I really think of the, the people who stepped up and worked on the film. And there was there was one guy um, who plays the boss in the film. He he was happy to do it. He was really happy based on the subject matter of the material, um, which was, which was exhilarating. I mean, as soon as he was talking about that, I was like, dude, we, I, that's, I want you on board. If you're enthusiastic for the messaging too, definitely somebody I, I want to be working with. And I do, I just, I also just want to make a plug for, I mean, some of the, the, the folks, the folks from Taliesin Nexus, Patrick Reason over Matt Edwards, Victoria Hill were just Tremendous to work with. So supportive. Patrick's been a friend of mine for many years. They were awesome. And without my editor, Arash Aram, he was just, uh, I mean, he, first off, he's an amazing editor, um, was able to take kind of this jumble of uh, clips that I, I created uh, and, and put it together into a coherent, well-told whole. And I'm just so grateful. And, and he's been so generous with his time. You know, again, there's a lot of people, especially towards the end of a production, you're usually like way more than out of money. You're beyond out of money. And so he's, and he's volunteered to, to do all of this and just, and did an excellent job. Where was it filmed? In California? It was. It was in Los Angeles. Yeah. There's so many great resources there, right? You've got the best of the best down there. And so you just kind of have to take advantage of, of, of that. And there's, you know, and folks are used to you coming in and filming. And we went into Chinatown and we shot kind of on the outskirts of that. And even that, there were people who were like, you can't show, we'll let you use the exterior of our building, but you can't show any identifying marks of our building. It's not surprising to hear you say these things, but it never occurred to me. And so in retrospect, I'm not surprised, but I'm, sh I'm still shocked at the same time. It's like, wow, that kind of brings home the reality of what you're doing here. Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of it validates all of these aspects along the way validate like the importance of telling the story because and, and this is something, you know, I mean, I've I've heard this from other people doing other films. I haven't gotten this yet, but this is really common now, right, where people 
feel like certain groups own a story. And if you're not part of that group, then you can't tell that story. But, you know, I look at it as, hey, what if that group can't tell their story? You know, I mean, is it presumptuous of me? Well, absolutely. But I'm making stuff up. I mean, that's always presumptuous. If anybody made this up, this would be presumptuous. You know, maybe you'd say, okay, well, if somebody from China, particularly of that time period, made it or something, it'd be more, yeah, sure, it'd probably be more accurate. Uh, but, you know, and I'd love to see that film. The problem is nobody can make that film. And so I made my version. And, and I, I've done it as my best as to honor the story and certainly, uh, you know, not to... Um, you know, even to exploit the story, as somebody would say. But like, you know, I, I really want to share this amazing act by this amazing person. And my sense is that every people have weird agendas all the time. But anybody who looks at what this is about in the context of it is going to feel nothing but admiration for your efforts doing it. So that's my attitude my attitude about it. Thank you. And I remember one uh, actress uh, in the production, she had expressed some concerns, you know, be, uh, initially when, because um, I had asked that people use the, the mainland accent that they have um, for it because I, and, and I think she was concerned and I, I understand, you know, she didn't want it to become some sort of, you know, thing where, oh, you you know, look at the funny speaking Chinese person. Um, and, 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 but I think she quickly realized like, oh, that, that's not it at all. But I wanted to give it a sense of, you know, that this is that of its time and place and, and not, uh, you know, not like having people speak like they're from San Fernando Valley, you know, I mean, it's, it's great to, you know, I, I, I wanted and had a, an all Chinese cast, but I, but I didn't want it to sound like, you know, they're hanging out at Venice beach, um, you know, outside of that, I felt like it, it had to give you a, a sense of the place. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I, I thought everybody did a great job of, of allowing the story to be told that way. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of decisions that aren't obvious when you're watching it, but when you start thinking about it, how, how do you actually build this up as a, as a film that become really difficult and some really tough decisions. So I'm not a filmmaker, so I'm certainly not going to second guess you, but like I said, I mean, I think, I think the results speak for themselves and I think it's, I think it tells it very well. If you want to shift gears a little bit, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about acting in general, because you you have a lengthy IMDb page, and you've been involved in a lot of projects, and I think you're involved in some uh, theater projects too, or at least have been, right? Yeah, that's I did two uh, two live shows this year already. What's your advice for somebody, a young person who is interested in acting and who dreams of making it big in Hollywood? What do you tell somebody like that? Like, what's what's it really like being an actor? The earlier you start, the better off you'll be. It's, uh, you know, I, my struggle now is I'm almost 40 years old and people say, well, you know, how come you're not farther along? And it's a, it's a fair question, right? You know, why, why don't you have a, or how come you have, don't have series regular TV roles? Uh, and so, you know, you, when you're young, people are willing to make a lot of exceptions. You're young, you know, how can you have all these experience, all this experience, you know? When you get to be my age, then it's uh, then they start wondering why. How come people are passing you by? What's the problem? <laughs> What's the problem? Maybe I'm seeing. Maybe I'm not seeing. And uh, so the earlier you start, the better. But the reality is, a lot of people, most people who want to be who want to and try to be actors in Hollywood, 
don't make it huge. It's certainly certainly not right away. I mean, some people walk in their first interview and land a major role, but that's not the typical story. No, I know. And you hear people who are like, who are cast in productions that somebody was just telling me, I think, I don't know if this is true or not, but but it, it sounds plausible. If if this story isn't true, there's another story just like it that is, that the, the gal playing Arya Stark in Game of Thrones, she wasn't even really an actor, didn't really even, I don't know if she didn't have a desire to it or what, but she was a dancer, but they wanted somebody who was graceful and nimble and for that role. And so- they basically cast her and it was like her first role. Uh, I even looked into it, so I don't know if it's 100% true or not, but you hear these kinds of stories all the time where people just kind of luck into these things that other people are working so hard for and spending years of, of effort and and tons of dollars and everything else. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, but life's not fair, but that's okay, you know, because some people get a lot of good luck and some people get some bad luck and uh, but, you know, kind of, I do, my other piece of advice would be kind of like your story earlier, or your your question earlier, which was kind of, kind of along the lines of what would you be willing to die for, you know, consider that. And that's the same question I'd ask in the career. What are you willing to do? And what are you not willing to do? And these are really, these are questions you want to wrestle with before they get asked, because you may get offered a part in uh, a film or a TV or commercial, whatever, of something that you find immoral, distasteful, uh, and and you know, and you may say that's okay. My value, my highest value, is to be an actor. So whatever that takes, I'm going to do. Or you may say, you know what? I'd rather have something, uh, you know, this aspect of me sanctified. But know that in advance because it's really hard at that time and there's a lot of pressures, right, from your agents or your family or your friends or the production to get you to do something that you may be less inclined, you know, or things like nudity or whatever it may be. Um, and I don't, I don't have any answers for anybody else. These are just purely personal questions that I would just urge people to explore for themselves, you know, find out what that is and, and, and maybe nothing. And you're like, great, anything, but even things like, you know, the Harvey Weinstein situations really complex. Uh, I mean, certainly there were stories. It's, it sounds of him, you know, raping somebody physically, uh, you know, uh, harming people. Uh, but then there's also stories of kind of, and and these are real common, right? Of where, you know, if you sleep with someone, they will get you a role. If that doesn't bother you, then that can be a great way to get ahead. But, uh, but you know, I think for a lot of people, they don't want success at any cost. You know, like Adam Smith phrases it in the theory of moral sentiments. We uh, not only want to be loved, but we want to be lovely. So, you know, usually we want to not only get that role, but we want to have earned that role or deserve that role. Uh, and, and usually that's because we want to feel we merited it by our performance. But there's a lot of, there's a not insignificant, I won't say a lot, but there's not an, in, there is a not insignificant number of opportunities to, in this case, sleep your way into parts. And so, and I think a lot of people probably would step back and say, wow, I, I really don't want to achieve my success that way. But it's great to think about it in advance, that that's a real possibility, and to know what it is you would want to do under those circumstances. 
other than that, just learn your lines. <laughs> learn your lines. You know, so many people, they, and character is really interesting and, and important. I mean, you know, the successful actors are, are you know, are, are doing a great job of portraying. But honestly, most of the time, if people just learn their lines, they do a lot better. So you've kind of taken yourself out of the Hollywood scene. You live in Arizona, right? You live there full time, right? Yes. Yeah, I do. Do you, Are you still traveling to do auditions and such? I do. Um, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows. I wish I, I wish I had more time during the day, but I, you know, I, yeah, I run a, a shipping business for my family out here. I've, uh, taken that over. Um, I, uh, you know, I give talks on art and liberty. I've been w working on this film on tank man and others developing others for some time now and doing live production. So a lot of my, uh, film acting kind of pursuits have fallen by the wayside as of late, but I, you know, I, I'll, I get back into things every now and then. And like last fall, I was, you know, was diligent about submitting to things and did a, a really cool short film, um, in Ohio. Um, it was actually an NYU graduate thesis film, which, uh, you know, it may not sound like a lot, but it's, uh, but, but those are great. You know, I mean, those are kind of the next, the next, the future filmmakers, who are making these. So it was really cool. You know, it's great to make a few bucks and, uh, and, uh, get out there and, and do what I enjoy doing and what, uh, what some people value. Um, so, you know, I, a few weeks ago I started submitting again when I was in Los Angeles, I went back online, but there's, um, it's hard to, uh, to get the, to get access to roles. I mean, we have some websites that you can submit to, and I urge people to do that from wherever they are. Because nowadays you can submit, um, you know, upload video auditions and, you know, do Skype interviews and callbacks. I mean, this, this project, I, I never met them in person until I showed up on set. And so, you know, I had a principal role in this short film and it was all determined from, um, from online interaction. So it's, it's possible. Um, but, uh, but, you know, nothing replaces kind of being there in person if you're in Los Angeles, but, but now it's, it's, it's even harder than it used to be. Cause I could go and visit and I could do these things called casting director workshops. And what they were is they were billed as educational opportunities and they are, you get a chance to audition and sometimes you get feedback from the casting director. Great. Um, but what they really were, was providing you with access to casting directors, um, because casting directors usually only, you can't submit to them directly. You have your agent submit to them, but if you don't have an agent, it's hard to access and getting an agent is really hard, especially to get a decent agent. I mean, there's plenty of people with agents who are still going to the casting director workshops. Well, the state of California decided that this was exploitative. And I understood because that was my first inclination when I heard of, of these things. It's, it sounds like it's pay to play like this. This doesn't seem right. But then I thought about it. How else am I going to get them to see me? It's worth the $25, $35, $55 to get in there and be able to show a casting director my work. Because if I fit what they need, they're going to hire me. It would, make, it would make no sense for them not to. Now, the odds of me getting work from there, it's not huge, but it's better than zero. And, you know, we're already in a field where we're, we're working with long odds as it is. Uh, and so, uh, but the state of California and in its infinite wisdom decided that uh, this is exploit exploitation of actors. 
And so they made it illegal. And then they followed up with a few high profile um, uh, prosecutions. And now it's pretty much shut down. And so I go and talk to my my friends in the business actors uh, who are, you know, at my same level or a little bit above or a little below, right around there. And I say, how do you, they have no idea. We, we, we don't know how to access these people, how to get seen by them, how to uh, get roles or anything. It's, it's really tough now. They, they took away what um, was an opportunity where, you know, people complain about these market processes, right? These exploitations. But what this did was this made it so that those who are already juiced in, you know, those who, uh, it was a low cost entry, low cost possibility. Cause now it's continues to be nepotism. You know, it's, it's that same kind of network, uh, that, uh, you know, may not be direct family, but it's people that they know, um, uh, and, and multi-generation of people. And it's all about relationships cause that's what it is. And so this was a way of paying to build a relationship, but that was better than just not having a possibility to have a relationship. This is tricky, of course, depending on context, but usually if somebody is insistent that they're, that they're not being exploited, maybe we should take them seriously and believe what they're saying, or at least as a, as our first take, we should take them seriously, even if we question some things after that. Yeah. I mean, on top of the fact that, again, this is a purely voluntary behavior, right? You didn't have to pay anybody. You could send in your headshot and resume to an office and say, you know, you can drop it in the mail and say, I'm not going to pay them, but I'll, I'll just send it that way or, or not participate, find another way to do it. But this was a way to do it. You know, ironically, I didn't know about that political story. I'm, I live in Colorado, so I hadn't heard of that. But it strikes me, like my immediate guess is that that sort of regulation is going to create actually exploitative behavior in other ways, like the sleep with the director type of thing. And so I, that would make a great dissertation for someone in California. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've been wanting to write an article about this too. I just, you know, finding time for all the things we want to do is not the easiest task. But, but, but you're right. Yeah, exactly. It lends itself towards okay. If you know, there's going to be some sort of currency exchange. It's just a function of what the currency is. And I think that in most circumstances, it's more noble to exchange uh, dollars than sexual favors to each their own, you know, uh, if, if that's how they want to exchange, but at least leave that option there. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, they just took away one more option. And so you end up, okay, we'll go back to the traditional method. So listeners might have picked up on the idea that Robert is, is a pro-liberty kind of guy. I think it's fair to say you're, you consider yourself a libertarian, right? That, that would be fair. Yeah. And so, and I happen to know you just got back from FECON, which is the Foundation for Economic Education. Yeah. And that was in Atlanta? Yes. And here's a just a quick anecdote. So Robert and I, one time many years ago, back when the Foundation for Economic Education still was on their property near New York, up the river, we went there to see an event. And it was really interesting to me. There was so much history with photographs on the wall, photographs of Juan Mises. And it was just, the building was just... I'm glad I got this, a chance to see it before they finally sold it. I think because it was worth it was worth quite a bit of money the property, and so they they packed up and moved to Atlanta. Is that where they are located now? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. The upkeep of that it was an old mansion from like the turn of the century, and the upkeep was just so much. They had to raise so much money just to keep up the building, uh, as opposed to putting it into programs. 
Oh, okay. So I thought it was primarily just to kind of cash out of the property. But yeah, I guess there was also this maintenance aspect then. Yeah. Yeah. I think they said it was near $2 million a year uh, between, you know, between taxes and, and maintenance, preservation, things like restoration, whatever, you know, keeping it up. Uh, yeah. And utilities. That's a lot of payroll. Uh, yeah. 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 So what was the, uh, what did you see at fee? What do you, what's going on in the Liberty movement? The event was a lot of students from their student seminars, a lot of supporters, you know, their donor base. And uh, it was, it was just, it was great. So Fee has a new president um, and uh, he's from a Lithuanian free market uh, think tank that's been very successful over there. A really interesting directional change. So I'll be curious to see how it all fits in. Did he move to the U.S. or does he still live in Europe? You know, he, he moved to the U.S. now. So he's, he's living in Atlanta because Larry Reed has retired, uh, although he hasn't stopped. He's still going to do um, touring, giving talks, and also uh, continue to write a lot, which is his first passion, which is great. Um, but yeah, Larry Reed has stepped down from, from president. And so, you know, basically, he's still going to be around. He just doesn't have to deal with the day-to-day kind of operational aspects of the job. And some of my listeners may know that I used to be very active in the Libertarian Party here in Colorado, but I don't really, I don't call myself a Libertarian anymore for various reasons. But one reason is the term is just seeming, seems to me to become increasingly ambiguous or even meaningless. So today in the, in the rise of Trump, there's an unfortunate number of Libertarians and even objectivist people who are interested in Ayn Rand who have gotten interested in the alt-right, which is in a way, shocking to me, but in another way, these trends go all the way back to Murray Rothbard, who was forging these strange alliances with the so-called paleoconservatives. But on the other end, you have the groups like the Niskanen Center, who are basically advocating fairly robust welfare state, and that's their version of libertarianism. So what does libertarianism mean to you, and what do you see, how do you evaluate the movement in its, in its direction these days? I still like the term. I can understand your reservations. And I know a number of people who have said uh, uh, similar things or had a variety of reasons for having a falling out with the use of the term. Overall, I think uh, I think there's a lot of people who are just, you know, involved in the movement who are just kind of continuing to do the, the things that they're doing. I think, yeah, there's been some people who have spilled over into this alt-right scene Um that uh, I, I think I think it's I think what happened was when Ron Paul was running, there was a big, you know, during his campaigns, his two presidential campaigns, there was a big influx of people who were attracted to libertarianism and identified themselves as libertarian. And I think what we've seen subsequent to that is a lot of folks weren't libertarian. You know, they liked Ron Paul relative to other things, and so they you know, followed him and they took on this mantle. Uh, but then as that, that ended, they uh, naturally went to things, belief systems and candidates, the, whatever the next candidate that most adheres to the things that they, they actually believe. Um, and so uh, I think we just had an, a swell of people who didn't really belong with us. Um, and Hopefully we hopefully we changed them for the better, or we're able to teach them a thing or two about economics or political philosophy along the way that they're they're richer for it. But they just weren't a natural fit, and so they've 
kind of, you know, either gone towards the alt-right or to, to the Bernie Sanders AOC camp now or, or whatever it, it may be. And I think we're, you know, fortunately, we're always going to have that remnant, that, that libertarian group that maybe it never will be huge. But, uh, but they're always going to be there and, you know, staying principled and sticking to the ideas uh, and not, not as concerned about who adheres or how many people, you know, who adhere to the ideas or, or find value in the ideas and, you know, just keep, keep chugging along. So if you have time, I'd like to do one more quickly, one more brief topic, which is your interest in stoicism. And uh, it occurs to me that this might be of an interest to your, of yours, partly because of your career as an actor, which is challenging and can have its ups and downs. And I'm, and I'm wondering what, what attracts you to stoicism and what you see as its benefits and value. I think it's just a really useful philosophy in a lot of ways uh, for, for living as good a life as one can. I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't uh, purport it to have all the answers and there are things that I struggle with and I certainly struggle with even the things I agree with, right? right? So um, one of the major tenets of Stoicism is the distinction between what we have control over and what we don't. And I think it's a really important, both ethically and metaphysically, to consider this. So to help keep your sanity, uh, we have to recognize, listen, I can't control, let's take politics, I can't control the voting populace, I can't control what America does. You know, it's going to have its institution that it has, and all of these 300 million people are going to vote the way that they want to vote. I can't control that. That's very, very clear. So why would I get worked up about it? It's, it seems like, why would I let, it seems ir totally irrational to let that aggravate me. Whereas it's much more rational to say, what do I have control over? Uh, the choices I make, which is basically all it boils down to. We want to think we have control over things like our body, but all it takes is an illness to say, oh yeah, I would not have authorized that illness if I had the chance, you know. I, uh, there are all sorts of things. Your, your foot goes numb, uh, you know, when you're, when you're sitting on it in a chair. There's nothing you could do, um, you know. You, you, can't, uh, you can't make it go unnumb at that time. You don't have control over it. So there are so many things we don't, but we do have control over our choices. And um, it's an important thing to keep in mind. And so, you know, and then when we pull that back too, that's why I think philosophy is so important is because a libertarian looks at the world and, and can see what we have control over and what we don't. But a socialist may say, well, if we can will things to existence, uh, you know, we can will things and, and write five-year plans and make those happen. Um, and if that's the world you live in, then sure, then you can authorize for all, all, all these, these mystical things to occur because you're going to will it into existence. Whereas libertarians tend to have that humility that says, ah, oh, man, I only have control over my little part here. And I can't control... I'm not under the delusion that I can control all these other things. So, so why pretend? Why try to, to exert that? And it forces us to have a more laissez-faire view on the world. 
than than otherwise. That's really interesting. I never actually heard the connection made like that between Stoicism and Libertarianism. But now that you say it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's actually something there. I, yeah, I gave a talk on on why libertarians should be Stoic uh, uh, or should should uh, engage in Stoicism um, last uh, last fall or was last, that online uh, or last summer. It is. Yeah, yeah. You can you can look that up. It's at the um, Capitalism and Morality Seminar in Vancouver, uh, summer of 2018, August or July of 2018. I'll do show notes and uh, I'll email this to you first or afterward, and then I can add whatever I might miss because that that kind of thing is really that's really interesting. I hadn't seen that talk. So there's one. I mean, the pushback. I'll, I'll also drop in the show notes. There's been this sort of mini debate about stoicism among someone at the Ayn Rand Institute who basically says it's overly fatalistic. It says you, it underemphasizes the actual control you do have over your life. And then Roderick Long has a response up at uh, Bleeding Heart Libertarians where he he sort of pushes back against that a little bit. But I, I, guess, I guess the pushback that I would have is that there seem to be degrees of control over your life, right? Like if my foot goes numb, I can't do anything about that directly, but I can, sure, I can certainly stand up and shake my foot around and get the blood flowing back in there. And... You know, I can't affect how somebody will vote, but very much. But there's something I can, like, I, I might be able to just say, you know, make some comment. You know, have you thought about this? Have you read this article? Have you thought about what do voters actually know and why they actually vote? It might make some difference. Absolutely. Abs- I, I, I completely agree. And I mean, I wouldn't be going around giving talks on art and liberty if I didn't think that it was going to have some sort of impact. The thing to keep in mind is, you know, is that you don't have control over the impact that that does. And so I present it out there. I hope that it will influence people, but I can't control uh, them or how they respond to it. It doesn't mean I, I won't do anything, you know, because I don't have control. It's just, okay, I don't have control, but that's okay. I mean, it doesn't change. Also, it doesn't change what I should do, what the morally correct or ethical outcome would be. And so, you know, I I really, uh, I I think that's an important distinction to make that just because we can't control things doesn't mean we shouldn't do things. I mean, how could you run a business, right? I can't make customers come into my shop. I, I, I can't control whether they come in or not, but I can stage it. I can advertise. I can make it a hospitable place. Um, you know, I can make uh, offerings that are conducive that, that I think people will like, and they will come in and, and come to the shop. But you, you, you bring up, uh, uh, interesting, uh, aspects though, with the, with the, the fatalism of, uh, and this is, you know, definitely the, the metaphysical aspects that I, I think you can adhere to the ethics of stoicism, you know, and, and value, uh, what it offers in, in other arenas without, taking the metaphysics, but it is interesting. I mean, in general, there's not like a Stoic consensus, but in general, Stoics um, believe in a cyclical, fated universe. And it's certainly, I this is w- where I struggle the most uh, with Stoicism and, and the aspect I dislike, because I want to believe that I have got total free will. But even in that fated universe, you have control over your actions, over your choice. So you can choose to consent or you can choose not to consent. So, you know, 
that, uh, you know, if, if there's a firing squad there waiting for you, how you go about uh, stepping in front of that or what you do leading up to that, you were fated to be shot by the firing squad regardless, um, you know, but you can choose to rat out your friends beforehand or not. Those are the things that you have control over. The Stoics believe you have still, you always have that power of choice, regardless of these, um, these predetermined outcomes. To wrap up here, what is, your, what is the choice next on your agenda? What are you going to, did you, did you really enjoy directing? Is that something you want to do a lot more of and you're going to try to do more of? Or what, what's the basic, what's the course of your life from here? It's a good question. It's constantly evolving and I'm never quite sure. But, uh, but you know, I try to seize opportunities as they arise, interesting ones that I think will be useful to me and useful to others. And I think uh, what I'm hoping to do is uh, Arash and I, I'm roping him in here. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how, how clear I've, I've been to him, but I'm, I'm, I'm committing him on, on the air as well, that we're going to look to do a Berlin Wall piece before November 9th, the 30th anniversary of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, so I'd really like to do a kind of a similar story in the sense that it's going to be, I like the more quiet, intimate stories. Um, it's also cheaper and easier to shoot. You know, these uh, big budget things are definitely out of my league. I can't have the tanks and the, you know, soldiers and explosions, um, which, but those things don't particularly interest me. I like telling those small, intimate character driven stories. And so I want to do one of that. We're working on crafting a story right now for it. And hopefully we will have that out by end of November. But, um, you know, currently just traveling around. Are you saying November this year? Correct. Oh, wow. Well, that would be, that would yeah, be great. Yeah, really jamming it out. Um, but, uh, you know, currently enjoying um, traveling around and talking about Tank Man. Um, you know, hope to continue the various kind of libertarian related to art and philosophy uh, talks that I, I get to give and um, and continue to work in, in acting, I hope, and, and you know, and, and running my shipping business too. So... Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm on the alumni board of, of FEE, Foundation for Economic Education that you mentioned, FEE.org, F-E-E.org. And then also I'm a vice president of the chair of Fully Informed Jury Association. Uh, that's FIJA, F-I-J-A.org. Super interesting case with that, with the uh, prosecution of the, it was a man, I think this case was a man who gave food and or water to immigrants and they prosecuted him, but the jury said, nope, we're not going to convict. Well, yeah, yeah, and it was a basically a hung jury, um, so it's a possible retrial, but they certainly couldn't get uh, the jurors to um, agree. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes you get jurors who are just like, "Fine, we'll just convict," you know, just so we can all go home. Fortunately, we we had a set of jurors who, um, you know, for for both sides, I suppose. I mean, I, I'm I'm more inclined to the defense on this. I certainly am not privy to a lot of the material. But uh, I'm more inclined to the defendant. But uh, but you know, at least you, you had jurors who weren't just going along to get along. Um, you had people saying, "Nope, this is what I believe," and and they just said, "Hey, we've talked about it enough. We can't uh, we can't reach a conclusion." And so you know, that was the end of that. Do you run a web page or anything collecting your talks or anything, or how do how do people find out your what your projects are? 
boy, and I do such a terrible job of letting people know. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, just fortunately, since I've got that three name, Robert Anthony Peters thing going on, if they Google that along with some other topic, they can usually find whatever it is. So I don't have a hub. It'd be something for me to work on um, and say, hey, check out my my stoicism talk here or what have you. But uh, I know people have, have found luck just since I've got uh, since I've got that that branded name that they're usually able to find it that way. Well, I'll try to put some good indicators in the show notes too. I appreciate that. Our guest today has been Robert Anthony Peters. Thanks for being with us today, Robert. Appreciate it. Ari, always a pleasure. Thanks for being a friend and a great host. Thank you. You've, you're listening to the Self and Society podcast. Please check us out at ariarmstrong.com and we'll see you next time.